0: Mankind has always enjoyed pomp and circumstance. Mankind has always enjoyed throwing great festivities. They've always enjoyed honoring one another. We can think back to even, even Jesus' day and before that, when, when a general would have gone out and have con- had, had had a great victory, a great decisive battle that he won. And he would come back victorious and he would parade through the streets. The streets would be lined with people, they would be singing his praises, and oftentimes the, the spoils of that victory would trail behind him. We think of times when a king was newly crowned, the same thing would happen, that they would, they, would, they would march down the streets of the city that they were to rule and to reign in, and they would be lauded and they would be given praise and honor. And in part, as they were going on this procession, they were, they were kind of giving a glimpse of the kingdom that they would bring. The, 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 the man who had had the great decisive victory, bringing back all the spoils, well, those spoils would be enjoyed by that city. But this is not only just in, in the days of old, but we have this in our day. Think of when we have a newly elected president. We have a great processional of the, of the changing of the office. And then a speech is given declaring what it is that President intends to do and, and to how he intends to govern. And we even see this in sports. We see this that once a, a, a team wins a national title or something of that, what is it? They go back to their hometown and they march through the streets and the people are lying, lying the streets and giving them praise and honor for the, for the, the victory that they have just won. Mankind is it has never been; um, they have never been wont to honor each other. But maybe politics and maybe sports are not something that tweaks your interest. But what it what is it that you do stand in all for? Maybe we don't stand in all for a sports team or for the president. But what is it that you stand in all for? Now I know we have not been going through Mark section by section, but here. Mark has brought us to a very decisive place in his gospel. He has portrayed Jesus in many different facets. At at Christ's baptism, he's portrayed Jesus as the anointed one of God. He has portrayed Jesus as having the power and authority to cast out demons, the power to heal the blind and the lame and the sick. But he's also showed Jesus very compassionately. He has shown that Jesus is not stern with those who come to him, And that he does not turn them away, but he's compassionate and loving toward his people. And here, Mark is seeking to show us another great facet of Christ. He's seeking to show us Christ as king, as having authority. In these first 11 verses of chapter 11, Mark is portraying Jesus, our great king, ushering in a kingdom of peace by accomplishing the work of redemption. That Jesus, our great King, has ushered in a kingdom of peace by accomplishing the work of redemption. And I want to look at it in three ways tonight. First, the royalty of Christ, verses 1 through 6. The royalty of Christ. Secondly, the kingdom of Christ, verses 7 through 10. And thirdly, the work of Christ, verse 11. We'll begin our text, Mark giving us this this depiction of Jesus returning to Jerusalem. In the previous chapters, Jesus had been out in Judea. He had been across the Jordan. He had been ministering among the Gentile lands, something that Mark is very quick to point out to us in his gospel. But now Jesus is returning to Jerusalem for the time of Passover. He says that they come through Bethphage and Bethany to the Mount of Olives. But this is not something that is out of the ordinary, because in Jewish times, it was required that the Jews, particularly the men, would go to Jerusalem every year to celebrate Passover, that great festival celebrating the time when God brought His people out of of bondage and slavery to Egypt. So, in the disciples' mind, This this traveling to Jerusalem is not out of the ordinary. And again, this is is the third year of Jesus' ministry. This is the last week of his earthly life. And so this is something that the disciples would have done with Jesus at least two times before. So in in their minds, this is nothing out of the ordinary. But Jesus has something greater in mind. Look at verse 2. He instructs two of them and he says, Go into the village in front of you, probably Bethany or Bethphage, And immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Jesus has in mind revealing himself. Because up to this point in Mark's gospel, every time Jesus healed someone or every time he he did a great miracle, and even in chapter 8, when Peter confessed who Jesus' true identity was, Jesus was always quick to make sure that no one told it. That, they, that His identity was not spread. But here, in the final week of His life, Jesus is about to reveal His true identity as the Messiah. So the disciples go. They bring the cult. They answer accordingly to how Jesus told them to answer if they are confronted. And then they bring the cult back to Jesus. Jesus. But, for us, in the 21st century, we don't normally think of a cult as anything that is very grand. We think of a donkey as a farm animal. We think of as a beast of burden. But actually, the Bible gives us a very different depiction of what a cult is, for Jesus here. It is a symbol of royalty, that that the cult is a symbol of royalty. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 1, when David is passing on his his throne to his son Solomon. We are told that David puts Solomon on his own mule, his own donkey, and has him process into the city. We are even in the law, we are told in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, that a cult that has never worked a day in its life, a cult that has not had anyone ridden on it, was pure. And that it was able to make, they, the, the Israelites were able to use that pure donkey as a sacrifice to make atonement for sins. So here we're not only given, it's a symbol of royalty and a symbol of purity. But we can trace it back even a little further to, well, let's stop for a minute. Our, our Old Testament passage, what we just read. We have in the prophets, we have, we have Zechariah prophesying to, to the nation of Israel. Now, the context in which Zechariah is prophesying is one of oppression. The people have been oppressed. Israel has been oppressed. They are in a lowly estate. And so, Zechariah prophesying to give them hope, saying, Israel, you will have a king, and that king will come and deliver you. We look at the language in Zechariah 9, and that king will bring peace. He will break the chariots. He will break the spears, the implements of war. But not only do the prophets echo this, but we can trace this all the way back to the patriarchs. In Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is pronouncing a blessing on his 12 sons, And and the blessing in which Jacob pronounces upon them is is a bit of a, a prophesying of their future descendants. And Jacob, as he's speaking to his son Judah, he tells Judah, not only that will your brothers praise you, not only will the scepter not pass from between your feet or leave your hand, giving him this distinguished place of kings will come from your line, but also, Jacob prophesies over Judah that you will tie your cult to the vine. You will tie your cult to the choice vine. So we have this, this cult, the this symbol of royalty, but also the vine, a symbol of blessedness. So Jacob is prophesying over his son Judah that kings will come from your line. Your brothers shall praise you and that the kingdom that your descendants will bring is a blessed kingdom. This should cause us to marvel at God's providence and His revelation. I mean, we see, we see Jesus' triumphal entry not just a whim, but we can trace it back thousands of years and how God is unfolding His great plan of redemption for His people. And as it is in God's providence, again, Jesus is the son of Joseph, who is the son of David, who is the son of Judah. So again, we can look at this line that, that, that God, through prophesying through Jacob, blessing his son, we can see and trace this line from Judah all the way to David, to Joseph, and now to Jesus. So the Bible gives us a very different image of a cult than what we might think of in the twenty-first century, that the cult was a, a symbol of royalty. a a, a symbol of dignity and honor. But Mark is not only trying just to depict Jesus as a king, he's also showing the kingdom of this king. Read with me in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus, the cult is brought to Jesus. But not only is, are we given that Jesus is, is king, he's, he's, he's royalty, but also we're given the nature of his kingdom. Just like as, as the president The newly inaugurated president makes a speech and tells all the things that he's going to do for his people as he governs. The the procession as Jesus goes in, and the manner in which he goes in, shows us the nature of his kingdom, and is two things, I want to look at it two ways. First it is humble, humble, three things actually, humble, it is spiritual in nature, but it is also, excuse me, yes, humble and spiritual in nature. First of all, we look at the manner in which he goes in. The disciples throw their cloaks on the donkey. This donkey, who has never been worked a day in its life, it has never been rode on. And so the disciples make a makeshift saddle for him. So Jesus mounts this donkey, and he, as he's riding, the people begin to see him riding in, and, 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 this, and we, begin, we can question why would people think this is odd? But really, in the first century, in, in first century Jerusalem, the main mode of transportation was on foot, that, that the donkey being the symbol of royalty, right, would have been very odd for the people of Jerusalem, and, and the city would have been packed at this point. It would have been very odd to see someone riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. They would have walked everywhere. This is the only place in Mark's Gospel where Jesus is said to have rode on anything. He and His disciples throughout His three-year earthly ministry have walked everywhere. And so the people are looking and they're seeing Jesus ride on this donkey and it's very odd to them. And and perhaps they have Zechariah in the back of their mind thinking thinking that maybe this is the promised one that is going to bring peace. Because after all, in their day and age, they're occupied by Rome. They're in the same place that the the people of Zechariah's time were in. High taxes. They were were abused by the Roman soldiers. Life for the first century Jew in Jerusalem was was one of occupation and and one that was very hard to deal with because of the Roman Empire. So we we can just imagine these people seeing Jesus ride in and knowing that there's a promised Messiah coming... And they see Him and they begin to flock around Him in hope and in expectation that maybe this just might be the Messiah. And as they come around Him, they begin to proclaim, Hosanna, which means, save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We, we've, we just sang Psalm 118. And here, they're quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is, is, is a very brief description of, of, really, the plan of redemption. We have in Psalm 118, oppression, which is, then, which is then done away with by a Messiah. And so, the people coming together, and this would have been something they would have sung every year at Passover. They would have come together and sang this, and, and, and some commentators think that they would have sang it as they processed to the temple. So really, this, this, this idea of the people gathering together and processing in around Jesus is not so far-fetched when we think of it and frame it in terms that they have a desire to be saved. They have a desire and an expectation. But what is that expectation? Because as, we, as, as Mark is trying to get us to look at, Jesus' kingdom is humble, it's spiritual in nature, but it is about bringing peace. It's humble, it's spiritual in nature, and, it's about, and, it's, and he's ushering in peace. However, the people, by their second, the second phrase in their song, they kind of show that they don't fully understand who the Messiah is and what his work is about. In verse 10 they say this, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So we can't help but think, because verse 10 is not in Psalm 118. So we can't help but think, what is their expectation of the Messiah? And I think if we couple this with the idea that that to this point, Jesus has remained hidden. He's kind of stayed on the outskirts. He has not not made himself known in the true identity as the Messiah. And if we couple that with the idea that the people are desiring a, a physical, a more physical and earthly redemption, right? They're under the oppression of Rome. They want to be freed from that oppression. But it kind of ends there. They don't really see past that. The, the, the first century messianic expectation was one that the Messiah would come and set up an earthly rule and reign, not, a, not an eternal one but but simply an earthly rule and reign that would conquer their enemies and bring peace. Now, Jesus did intend to bring peace, but his scope, the scope of his kingdom was so much greater than just earthly. Jesus mounted on the donkey, walking into Jerusalem. He does not have a red carpet in front of him. He has the cloaks of the, the people laid before him. He has branches that they quickly cut from the fields laid before Him. But nevertheless, they are praising Him and they are expecting Him to bring in this earthly reign. And as they reach the gates of Jerusalem, we have, we have a difference here in Mark's account versus the other accounts. In, in both Matthew and Luke, we're told that the whole city was stirred by, by Jesus' entry. But here, Mark does not tell us that. Mark doesn't tell us that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, He stirs everyone. Instead, Mark tells us that the work of Christ is the temple. Jesus, processing in, does not go to some high-lofted throne. He does not go to a a festival and a day's or week's worth of celebration at His entry. But instead, He goes to the temple. And it is here in verse 11 we see the work of Christ. Again, we're not told exactly how many people were in the temple, but we're kind of led to infer that he was probably there either by himself or maybe just with the twelve. But nevertheless, Jesus goes to the temple. And I know this is a bit subjective, but as we consider his work... I just kind of imagine Jesus going into the temple and looking at everything around. We're told that he looks around, but maybe he looks upon the priestly vestments, and he begins to think of his work as the greater high priest. Maybe he looks at the altar of incense, the the altar that was to be continually kept burning, symbolizing prayers to God. And he looks at that altar, and he he thinks of his work after his ascension, of always making prayer for his people. Maybe we, he looks at the showbread and thinks of the time where he, he taught his disciples that he is the bread of life. And finally, maybe he looks at the altar and thinks of the hundreds of thousands of bulls and sheep and goats that have been offered upon that altar, but have not accomplished the work that he's come to do. Jesus comes to the temple, the very thing that, that prefigured him, the very thing that pointed to him. He comes to the temple because he is going to fulfill every aspect of that temple. Mark is is trying to get us to understand that that Jesus is not just king. He not just has a great kingdom of peace, but that he's coming to fulfill a great work that his Father has given him to do. And this really echoes Psalm 118, because Psalm 118 ends in the temple. It ends proceeding after a great victory and it ends in the temple and it ends with a sacrifice. It ends with making atonement. It ends with with praise and supplication going up to God the Father for the great work that He has done. And so we look at Christ, and we look at what Mark is, is depicting of us, pic, depicting to us of, of, of Christ as King, as, of, of revealing His true identity as the Messiah, of, of the nature of His kingdom, that it is a kingdom of peace, an eternal kingdom that He's ushering in, and the nature of His work. And when we kind of compare and contrast the, all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of man that have risen and fallen... We contrast the kingdom of Christ and what He has done. There's no comparison. We think of of the the kingdoms and the kings of the earth who exalt themselves and kings who ascend on high thrones and they are served by others. But then we think of Christ who came humbly, who, who processed into Jerusalem in a humble yet royal manner, but yet has come to complete the work, not to be served, but to serve. We see the, we see the kings of men rejoicing in, and, 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 and soaking in the praise of men and honor, and, and using their subjects as a way of, of gaining riches. But then we think of the nature of Christ's kingdom and His work and His kingship, and what has Christ done? He came in a humble manner processing through, and he goes to the cross. We think of Christ as as a king who came not to be served by his people, but to serve his people. We think of Christ as as, as one who has come to ransom a people for himself, not to tax them, not to oppress them so that he might have a, a greater status, but he came to give his life that they might have life. Mark is drawing our attention here to really think about the kingship of Christ. That in this passage, as Jesus has revealed Himself as the Messiah, we must, we must wrestle with what, this, what it is for Jesus to truly be king. And by way of application, I, I think that it is, we, we can look at it two ways. Because the kingship of Christ should, first of all, it should challenge us. Christ's kingship should challenge us. How is it that you and I are bringing our lives into greater, greater subjection to who Christ is? Do we think and meditate upon what it means for Christ to be truly king? That He reigns supreme over our lives? To drive more home. Husbands, do you love and cherish your wives as Christ has called you to do? Wives, do you love and cherish your husbands as he has called you to do and respect them? Christ has called us as, as parents and, has, and as older men and women of the faith to raise up the next generation. Are we diligent in coming under Christ's authority and living in a manner that way? Does does the kingship of Christ cause us to meditate upon how we live our everyday life, How how we are employees, how we are fellow brothers and sisters, how we deal with our families? But not only are we challenged by this, to really meditate and to think deeply upon Christ as King, but it is a great comfort to us. It's a great comfort to us. Yes, we are challenged that we, we, there is such a high standard that which we must live and attain to as Christ's people. But nevertheless, it is a great comfort. I want to draw your attention to, we, we used the, the larger catechism just earlier, but here in the shorter catechism, we have a, a more concise definition. How does Christ execute the office of a king? In subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And I want to draw your attention to those final few things. It is a great comfort to us. Christ, as our great King, is a comfort to us because He defends us, He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Think of, think of this way. And just meditate on it for a minute. All of your enemies... Are Christ's enemies. As, as, as the people of God, as the blood-bought people of God, all your enemies are Christ's enemies. And because He is a great King and a loving King and a compassionate King, He sees to it that His people are defended. He sees to it that His people are protected. Christ's kingship not only challenges us in our everyday life, but it should give us boldness. It should give us boldness to walk through life, knowing that we do not live by chance, that we do not live in a way that is that that could that could anyway detract from his sovereign rule and reign upon our lives. Jesus processed into Jerusalem in a humble manner, showing that He is the King and the long-awaited Messiah of His people, showing that he had, His kingdom is of a nature that is about to bring peace. Peace that not just reconciles men to men, nation to nation, or king to king, but a kingdom that is reconciling men to God. And not only the nature of His kingdom but that it is through His great work upon the cross that He is ushering in this kingdom and that He is furthering it day by day. That Jesus, our great King, is ushering in a kingdom of peace that is accomplished by His work. So as we go into our week, as we drive home, let's meditate upon that. Meditate upon what it truly means to live under the Lordship of Christ being challenged day by day to live more and more, praying that by the power of the Spirit we would be enabled more and more to live a life that would please Christ, not out of some moral obligation, not out of some attempt to earn our salvation, but out of a great response to what our King has done for us, that our King has come, has laid down His life for us, and that out of response we are to humbly come to Him being His faithful subjects, to the praise and adoration of His great name. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.